and welcome to the very 94th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast that is all about board games and the people who love them. I'm one such person who loves them. My name is Matt Lees, joined as ever by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matt Lees. And for the first time, you may have bumped into her on streams or our reviews online. It's our intern, Kylie Rowe. Hello. How are you doing, Kylie? I'm good, thank you. I've been meaning to do this, uh, but now we're finally on an audio medium. Uh, Kylie, uh, who is from the north of England, if you could just open that up and read what it says on the piece of paper, that would be great. You know nothing, Matt Lees. That's great. I think you've just um, gone against our bullying contract for both of us (laughs) at the same time. So I haven't actually passed around that documentation yet, but I will be doing. And I will be expecting a resignation letter by the end of the day. <laughs> I, w- I mean, we've had Kylie, like you say, on the stream interview. I was expecting more people to be excited that she's from the north of England. I'm from the north of England as well, you yeah, know. But, but she's properly from the north. You know, know. Matt, Matt's from the Midlands. <laughs> oh, Cheshire is not the Midlands. That's the, see, this is the nonsense thing about the UK. It's like, it doesn't matter how far from the north you are. We've got someone from Scotland here. They'd be like, you're not from the north. <laughs> it's like, they get someone from Greenland in as well. It never ends. I would definitely listen to a podcast of you two arguing about whether Matt is from the North or not. Why are people from the North proud of being in the, from the North? I guess you have to be, because yeah. it's just not as good as the South in many regards, but then you kind of can't admit that. <laughs> I mean, I always enjoy when you're like driving on the motorway and uh, it's, you're just heading to the North. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy that the signs say that, like something out of Lord of the Rings. I mean, yep. to be real, I think it's just the fact that like the North of England has been so shafted for such a long time that... It has lots of things lacking that the South has in abundance. But then, really, you can't do anything about that. So all you can really do is just sort of like take some pride in what you have got. And so it means that all of the aspects which you consider to be Southern things, the further North you are, really comes down to being like how much less you are Southern. It's mainly because people don't like London, I think. Yeah, I'm considered quite a traitor for moving down South. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. What fun! Well, we all (laughs) learned something today. Today we're going to be talking about some board games. We are going to be talking about Watson and Holmes. Uh, We're going to be talking about Escaping from Aliens in the poorly titled but great Escape from the Aliens and Out of Space. We're going to be talking about a card game played with a regular 52-card deck that doesn't suck called Bure. And let's not Bure the lead. It's wild, absolutely terrifying. And fun. Yep. Uh, We're going to be talking about Gugong, a game about being a member of the Chinese government and being corrupt as hell. Uh, And then we've finally, you two have finally played Chinatown. Right, let's start off by talking about three games that are themed, because you two are coming over to my house along with four other people. You said that like... You're coming over to my house. I'm like, what? No. You're coming to my house. You want to play a game? I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, no, because it, this was really weird because we had exactly seven people. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, to not toot my own bugle, we we play a lot of board games. I host a lot of board game nights. But with seven players, I was struck by how hard it was to you were curate the, games. You were the master of optimism, though. I remember you said, oh, there's seven people coming over. I was like, how many games can we play with seven people? And you were like, Matt loads i'm gonna play all the seven player games i've been waiting to play i don't think i said i think i said said loads it would be it will be fine and it was fine yeah no that's that's technically true so i'm i was really pleased that out of my collection of uh, of a couple of hundred games i was able to like manifest a really good seven player game night and so it started with a game that i know not many people bought called watson and holmes Mm, crime busters of the sea i'm gonna kick this one over to matt how would you explain watson and holmes watson and holmes is effectively a lot like a game we know and love called sherlock holmes consulting detective now consulting detective for those who don't know is basically a game where you have to move around london reading a book looking for clues and you've got to try and solve mysteries collaboratively Um, to try and solve them as well as Mr. Sherlock Holmes himself. Now, it's a game where you don't have a board or anything like that. You just have a notepad. You take your own notes. You try and deduce the crime. And the crimes are very complicated. And you basically just sit theorising amongst each other and go, wait, 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 wait. I think we should go here and investigate. Let's talk to the baker because he knows something about those roles that he's not sharing with everyone else. I mean, he's not sharing information versus the baker not sharing his roles with everyone else because a baker who doesn't share his roles with people is going to go out of business quite quickly. I agree. Anyway, it's just like that. However, it's competitive, which I think makes it better. (laughs) Well, I mean... It's different. But I loved it. I really loved it. It was cool. It was both of your first times playing it, right? And that was always a relief because it's it's kind of intimidating to go back to a game that Shut Up and Sit Down has reviewed and then go and 
that we said was great. Mm -hmm. And then years later, I go back to it going, I hope it's great because I said it was great. Yeah, it is great. I mean, it's slightly more limiting than um, Consulting Detective and that you can basically look up anywhere you want to go in London and you can be like, oh, I've got a hunch. Whereas in this, each case has a bunch of locations and you can choose to go to them. But then there's a thing of like, only one person can go to each place each turn and you end up bidding basically with a kind of resource of carriages, wasn't it? Yeah, it's sort of, it's an abstracted way of, of everyone can rush around. It's how many horses you're going to burn through to get there the yes, fastest. You might shoot five horses in the back of the head to get to the crime scene first. Yes, I mean, I'm situation. not sure that's how horses work, but I mean, anyway, well, you get there and you're like, by Jove, I found out this. But then you, there's all sorts of wonderful trickery in the fact that you can then spend a token you might have collected to basically make the police go there so people can't go, to try and bluff people into thinking that there might be some really good information there. Or maybe there just is some really good information there. Um, but I thought with bigger numbers, it worked way better than Consulting Detective would because Consulting Detective is fantastic with one or two or maybe three people. But otherwise, everyone's theorizing so loudly, it just becomes a bit raucous. Whereas in this, you're trying to crack the crime but you're doing it on your own quietly and then the game is basically trying to decide when you can answer like three or four questions about the crime and when you feel like you've got answers for that you can just scoot off on your um i was gonna say chariot (laughs) i'm really getting the theming wrong here Your, your horse chariot you can and and try and solve it first and win the game and you did that, which was infuriating. I did, especially it was especially hilarious in the fact that you actually had already solved the crime, but then you thought it must be more complicated, and you were like looking for clues within clues. I've had to come to terms with this, you two. As much as I love Consultant Detective and mystery-solving games, I'm just real bad. I'm so <laughs> bad, and I'm okay with that, because the sort of eternal hubris and optimism that burns within Quentin Smith means that every time I sit down to play them, I think, I'm going to win this. And that makes the whole game exciting. Rather, I never learn, basically. Trying to piece together what other information people might have was fascinating as well. Yeah. How, how did you find it, Carly? Uh, I mean, I quite liked it. When I was younger, I played a lot of uh, Clue or Cluda, but I always wanted to be actually solving something rather than being like, ah, a spanner, yeah. <laughs> whenever you found something. So this kind of satisfied that need. And I did like that element of I was pretty sure that I was onto the right track and like going to the right places. And then everyone kept going to the tea room and I'm like, why are you going to the tea room? There was it no reason seem... to go to the tea room. Yeah. But then the more people that went to the tea room, I was like, maybe I have to go to the tea room. There's a very weird pressure, isn't there? When everyone has a piece of the puzzle and because to clarify, the reason this works so well for big numbers is that play is simultaneous. You all bid as the different locations you're going to go to. Maybe someone bids outrageously to go to the scene of the crime, etc. But then you all just pick up the card you've bid for and read it. And that means that the game is super snappy with like the maximum of seven people. Mm, yeah. And I like the fact that you could maybe not go places. Like I didn't ever go to look at the corpse. Which is why I hate you. Yeah. I didn't look at the corpse or the scene of the crime, I don't think. But I just pieced together what, because basically by going, okay, look, I'm not going to bid for these and I'm going to do what Sherlock would do of wandering off into the woods next to it and piecing together what happened based on tiny bits of strange information because the police won't let Sherlock look at the crime scene. But it doesn't matter. He doesn't need to. So yeah, the Quinns is just for those of you listening at home, just shaking his head. I'm just so like... annoyed. I'm so annoyed. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was the simplest possible crime. And like, it, it's not much of a spoiler to say an unusually shaped bullet was found in the corpse. And that caused me to basically lose my marbles. Yeah. Like I was like, well, this bullet is probably belonged to a gun that was at least 200 years old, the historical society. Also, you gun. had some like some knowledge about corpses, which um, had us like double guessing the game's logic, but then the game was on the same logical page as everyone else. Yes, I knew too much which about was, You knew bodies. too much about, about rigor mortis, etc. I'm interested because I'm, I'm noticing some, uh, some I want to say resentment. That's not true. Some restraint in Kylie's praise. What is it that made the game not totally connected? for you because i think that puts you in the company of most people i think shut up and sit down generally likes this game more than the internet i want to say yeah i mean i think it worked really well at the higher player count but Mm. i think for me the thing that i really love about these type of games is the discussion that you have like when you're trying to solve this thing together and like the interesting theories that people can come up with when they read a piece of information uh is really interesting to me and you sometimes just 
work things out sort of together or like you might end up actually going on like a, the, one of the fake trails like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know uh, but yeah it's that discussion that I really quite enjoy which is why I think I do prefer consulting detective or Completely. games along that ilk but for a higher player count I thought this worked a lot better. Thanks I was proud of it but yeah it's the curious it, it's a very curious social dynamic where it's a game where you, there's so much to talk about and you would all benefit so much from you talked and no one says anything yeah because you can can't you you can share some stuff i mean the manual no doesn't say you can't to. yeah i mean I, I yeah i definitely agree but i thought for a, a seven player thing it was a, a remarkable little because uh, it was the first of a few games we played that evening it was a great way to start the the party and i really enjoyed the fake threads i really enjoyed having to double guess the um kind of staying staying your course of watching everyone else rushing off to the tea rooms or watching everyone else go to this place and that place and getting to the point where then you got enough of the raw clues to be like, oh, okay, I can understand why they went there now. But then trying to decide, is everyone right? Should I be following their routes or is that a red herring? And really, I found that to be a fascinating dynamic of, of watching everyone else doing stuff, but then having to like just really drill down with the information you have and being like, what's important? Oh, speaking and of like, which, we should mention the best mechanic in it, which is exactly like Clue or Cluedo, if you're English. Um, if you go to the end, you provide your answers. And if you've got any wrong, you are instantly eliminated. But someone getting that wrong opens up a new space for players to visit so that you can spend the turn reading someone else's answers. Yeah, and finding out how many of them were right, but not which ones. Yeah. Which is really cool. And I love the fact that there's some little flavour with different characters. And when we played, Chris Bratt's character had a one-time ability where Ben, the whole round, no one was allowed to take notes. It was the worst! Because <laughs> yeah, it means you then flip up this location and I think mine was fine. It was like okay, Mine was a, a list of eight double-barrel names. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were just like, this is awful. Um, <laughs> I thought it was really interesting and a really um, kind of in a way I can see why if, if people did like Consulting Detective and then got that and played it with two or three people you'd be like no I want to work together but oh, as, a, yeah. as a big table party game something a bit more akin to a murder mystery I thought was a really really fun thing yeah lovely thing to share um, but yeah certainly stronger at higher player counts uh, speaking of which something that I thought at the beginning of the game, we played an amazing game of this, and I thought it was disastrous. And then it turned out that everyone around the table was actually having the best time. We played Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space. Now, this is this is a very interesting one. So this is a hidden movement game with hidden roles. It's uh, set on a spaceship where everything's gone wrong. We talked about it and reviewed it way back in the site's history. But the way it works is everyone is dealt a card at the start of the game saying either they're a human trying to get off a ship, or they're an alien and they're trying to eat the humans. And everyone on their turn will move to a different hexagon and potentially make noise. Or, and this is the rule that powers the game, you might draw a card that means you have to announce to everybody, oh, you hear a noise from hexagon B5. But actually, that card, when you drew it, said you can lie about this. So sometimes players move silently, sometimes they make noise, sometimes they make noise to happen on the other side of the ship. And so it's basically a game of cat and mouse. But, and this turned out to be really important in a seven-player game, no one knew what team anyone was on. Mm, and we thought we did, but we were wrong. Well, this is why it was amazing, because about 10 minutes into our, I want to say, 40-minute game, and this was just a, a unbelievable game with like so many twists, we thought we knew what team everyone was on. It was yeah. like, oh, the aliens are these three people, the humans are these four people. It seemed pretty obvious, really. Like, it, it seemed pretty obvious. You're an alien. Shall, uh, shall we start, Kylie, with the fact that I spent half of my game... <laughs> Kylie, 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 look at, look at me when I'm talking to you. We, I spent half the game stalking you, because you were pretending to be a human, but you weren't human, were you? I, me, the alien, was actually stalking another alien across the ship. And you could have killed each other by accident. Yeah, I, I absolutely could have. And it didn't happen. Yeah, no, that was pretty epic i pretty enjoyed that um yeah because i was stalking clark uh <laughs> and i was pretty sure that i was on the same space as him and then i thought you were hunting for matt so i was like no one cares what i am like i can just silently stalk through here people thinking i'm a human and then all of a sudden it turned out clark was nowhere near where i was you were stalking clark as well which meant you were like hot on my trail yeah um but by that point, I felt like I couldn't announce that I was an alien without giving away sort of my gameplay. Yeah. It, and uh, yeah. It, yeah, Clark had played an absolute blinder in the fact that <laughs> he just kept getting cars that allowed him to lie about where he was. So he just made it look like he was very slowly clumping down the corridor to the south. And then suddenly was like, 
oh, I'm up here. I'm in the north. I'm about to get into an escape pod. And it's like, what? That happened twice. Yeah. It was like, it was it was nuts. And it, what, what was it that happened with? Oh, yeah. Well, with Clark, he just unfortunately drew one of the... No, f- yeah. no I was remembering what happened with uh, Chris Bratt. With Chris Bratt, well, I, I was incredibly lucky because whilst Clark had a blinder and managed to get to an escape pod without anyone knowing anything about where he was everyone thought they knew exactly where he was but they were all wrong and then he just got a dud pod the one out of five pods which is dud so it's like press the button it's like eh, eh, you're not getting out of here alive uh somebody else got to the door of one and then annie the alien just leapt on them in exactly the that right was position Rob. which was Kylie, yeah. do you want to explain your partner's hubris so he um i think he kept getting the cards that were uh silent so he wasn't making any noise whatsoever but for some reason, Annie had honed in on where he'd gone and she was uh, making a lot of noise in that sort of sector. She was basically, it was nuts to the rest yeah. of us because she was working on a hunch and she was essentially like banging against the sides of the ship, like every step, like wearing like metal toed boots. None of us knew why she was hanging out. And then, yeah, like yeah, you were saying. Yeah, I think we all were like going, Annie, why are you there? No one is there. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? It seemed like she'd lost the plot, but then she just snacked on a man about to enter an escape pod. Meanwhile, I was just walking to try and get the escape pod <laughs> on my own. So I was walking off on my own and I was having a very bad run of luck in the fact that I had to move through three clanky sectors in a row in order to get to like a point where I might be able to get to a pod safely. And all I needed to do was draw maybe one card that let me lie about where I was throughout that three spaces. And I didn't. I just kept drawing again and again and again, kept drawing like the cards that tell you everyone exactly where you are. And then I was like, well, everyone knows I'm down here now. So I actually maybe I'll double back a bit to confuse them. And all I need to do again is just draw one thing that's a lie and I can lose the scent. But then I just kept drawing noise ones. So everyone else around the table was just utterly confused because basically whilst everyone else was sneaking around trying to avoid the aliens, I was just clomping around in circles. <laughs> like literally being like, I'm over here. But you were you were too afraid of, of aliens. To... I was so afraid. So I was trying to run circles around them, but I ended up just basically being like a panicked Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park, just sort of like <laughs> running into the mud and screaming. But Chris Bratt was an alien on my tail and I was I was trying to dodge him for ages but, and to the point where you were chasing me for a while but you gave up because Chris was going to eat me but then Chris didn't eat me and then it turned out that that's because Chris, Chris was, a human. was a human pretending to be an alien it was like it was so interesting I've actually never quite played a match of a hidden role game like it where you know everyone's roles and everyone starts talking like I was saying to Chris okay Chris listen I can go over here if you eat Matt and Chris was like yeah yeah sure and that and then it just turned out he wasn't even an alien, but was pl- keeping up kayfabe for the whole game. Yeah. Like, I've never played a hidden role game. Like, usually hidden role games have a moment where it's kind of revealed and you kind of know what role everyone yeah, exactly. is. I've not played a game where that happens. And then it turns out, actually, everyone was lying. I was running in circles for ages trying to evade the jaws of an alien that wasn't there. <laughs> because... A, he wasn't an alien, and B, he was on the other side of the map. No, yeah, I was just going to say, like, yeah, no one was interested in Matt whatsoever. (laughs) Well, Quinns would have eaten me if he'd known that no one was going to eat me, because I was a pretty easy snack. I was like a Dairyly Lunchable, just hovering around. I was very easy to eat. It was just wild. I mean, we probably don't need to talk about the game more than that. If you Google Shut Up and Sit Down, Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space, you'll find our written review. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, it was something you reviewed just before I joined the team, and uh, I very think early, my uh, final thing I love about it is you, it comes with a book of of maps basically that are then like wiped clean marker books. So you yeah, can... this is the deluxe edition. That oh, we okay. Well, yeah, it's it's great, but I love the fact on the front that you have got a little picture of a man, and you can make him look like he's skateboarding or holding flowers or putting on a show. It's just a little fun thing to do while you're waiting for your turn by doodling on the wipe clean doodle on the wipe clean roads. front thing. Make your own little drawing. Fantastic. I mean, I really loved how. Um like that slow buildup of tension uh, for the game. Um, but I am a bit concerned that we're never going to have as epic a game as what we did. Yeah, but that kind of almost has its own value. I have a couple of games in my board game collection, and it, this is completely irrational, but where I, I have, they're not great games, but I had a really great game of them. Matt's about to, oh, it'll probably be out by the time this podcast comes out, but we just put up a video on YouTube of Matt filming me talking about my board game collection. Yeah. There's a couple of games in there, um, which I only keep around because they're just happy memories. I probably will never play them again, but as a totemic object, I can now look at those boxes and be like, oh, remember the time it's almost like having a, a a photo of a holiday or something so maybe yet yeah, we'll never have a game as epic of escape from the aliens in outer space but maybe that's okay i think there's a lot in there though i think especially in the fact that it's not as simple as like you're a goodie or you're an alien 
there is such a, a wealth of different things that the aliens could be or different things that humans could be that there's definitely right from the start it's ripe for people being confused about that stuff and all you need to do is roll with it very slightly and you can be a fake alien or a fake person quickly then we'll talk about because after that we rounded off the evening because i was googling what what card games can I play for seven players? And I dug up an unusual one called uh, Bourré, which is f- French. I'm going to stop saying it in a French accent. French for butter. It's it's not. It's, <laughs> I know. This is spelled B-O-U-R-R-E with an accent And I on. think it's very brave of you to try and say it. I've been listening to too much So Very Wrong About Games, which has a guy who was raised in Montreal, so he's able to pronounce everything in a flawless French accent, and I hate it. But only because he's better at it than me. Um, so yeah, Bureau is an interesting one. Apparently quite big in the NBA of all places. It's also quite big in uh, New Orleans. I can see why it'd be big in the NBA, because it is baller <laughs> as hell. It's unusual. So what you have here is a trick-taking game, um, which I'm not going to try and explain on the podcast. Basically, there are some similarities with poker. Um, you all you all ante to receive your cards, so you have a pot of chips in the middle, and then whoever wins is going to take those chips away. Players then decide whether they receive their cards and decide whether they are going to play. And so let's say it's Matt first. Matt says, mm, I quite like my cards. I'll I'll play. And I go, yeah, I'll play. Kylie sees that Matt and I are playing and a couple of other people are playing. He's like, no, I'm out. Done. Here's the catch in Bure. You have to win more tricks than anybody else in order to take the pot. However, if people, if no one wins more tricks than anyone else, so if two people both win two tricks, the pot just rolls over to next round, mm-hmm. which is like uniquely infuriating because you came so close and got But Quinn's is fine because you just put in maybe one chip for to get some cards and then another chip just to stay in the round. Well, Matt, it's funny you say that because, and this is the twist that means that it's, it's completely unlike poker and it's so easy to get people excited about, which is if you say you're going to win the most tricks and actually win zero, which is extremely likely in a trick-taking game, once that pot is given to someone, you have to put an amount of chips into the pot that is equal to how much was in it. So let's say there's $10 worth of chips in the pot. If someone wins, they get $10. But if you win zero tricks, you then have to put $10 into the pot. So it's got r- incentive for coming first and an equally large penalty for coming last. Yeah, or not even coming last. Like You can have multiple players who then do not. Yeah, at which point... You've at which got point a- then you've got a, a pot of like 40 chips and the next round, and this is why often there'll be a limit <laughs> for like how many you will have to put in at any one point. Because otherwise, and this is why, again, I'm not surprised it's popular in the nba because if if you're people who have like you know more money than god then it would just be an insane game where it'd be like oh i guess i lost that hand how much do i need to put in four hundred thousand pounds okay fine (laughs) it's i mean honestly it's terrifying and over the past um few months with us doing this card games that don't suck youtube series we have been uh dabbling lots more in some super mild gambling and uh, and we should point out that it's like yeah obviously gambling if you are an adult with friends using small amounts of money and no one's getting too serious great if you're not or if you're not so good at when you lose not a good idea and this game a terrible idea oh my gosh i've never played it it's the swingiest thing i've ever seen it's terrifying because it, it, the excitement of you know when you're playing poker and you think oh i might win this pot this pot is like three pounds i might win all of it when you're doing the complete opposite of that when you're not being like mm, how likely is it i'm gonna win three pounds with this you're looking at it being like how likely is it that i can win one trick because as long as you win one trick out of five out of yeah. five then you're fine but we were playing with seven people so when you had like five people in, suddenly it's like, ah, uh, so you had to be sure really that you could win one and maybe you win three and that you get the pot, but you just had to be sure that you could win one. And when you were sure you could win one, you didn't, it's suddenly like, oh, that's fine. And now I just have to put in, oh no, like people had huge <laughs> stacks of chips, which would then go straight back into the middle of the table. Yeah, no, I think that was um, a point like, cause I thought it was really hard when you were the first one to sort of say whether you were going to be in or not, yes. because you didn't know how many of the people were going to say yes. And I think one round when I actually decided, you know what? I'm going to go in on this. I was the first one to say yeah. And then everyone said yes. And I was like, oh God. Yeah, it's the, the the dealer rotates around the table with each hand as well. So if you're the last person to say, because then if no one's gone in, you can go in and try and clean up. Yeah. Or if everyone said they're in, you're safe. But like, I ended up playing badly because I was like, well... We, it'll take probably another half an hour for the dealer thing to come around for me, my situation to be that good again. So I should go in because it'll never be as safe as it is right now. Right? And then suddenly I've lost everything. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's incredibly dangerous and uh, it's, <laughs> it's wild, and like, should only be played with very small amounts of money and severe caps on how much can you potentially have to put in those tops because otherwise it can become insane. But I think what I really loved about it is like most of the time with things like this, you get the excitement of winning and the disappointment of losing. With this, it, basically, like winning was great, but. It wasn't much more great than just winning one hand and knowing that you weren't then going to have to put in like 20 chips into the middle. So it meant that you got that way more often. Way more often you were like, Ugh! and then you get the feeling of having won, even though you hadn't. Oh, yeah, because and, like, you lots did, of you people avoided, get it. Because you avoided getting penalised. Because you avoided like losing an incredible amount of money. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, I guess. I think that's why we found it so immediately entertaining is like, yeah, it's the the thrill of winning and then the thrill of not losing. It was so intense to look at these hands and be like, oh yeah, maybe I could win. Maybe I could win the pot with this. Or maybe you could lose like four pounds at once, which with, with the denominations we were using was like an incredible amount. Like, yeah, you know. it was it was nuts. It was also bizarre to, to win a couple of hands and be like, oh, I must be doing really well. But then somehow you're losing money because the hands where you crash out and have to pay into the pot just happen to be bigger pots than the pots that yeah. you won. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. That was uh, that was my issue. Was uh, yeah, it was like a pretty big pot when I lost. I was like, I was doing pretty well up until this point, and now, uh, oh, I'm losing pretty it's badly. Ridiculous. But- or the worst thing where you almost win a pot, but then you have, but you get the same amount as someone else, which means the pot stays in the middle and then gets added to. But then you feel like, well. I should go in on the next round because I kind of almost won that. And then it's like, oh, you lost that one. Now it's like, what? That was that was probably the actual high point for me was not winning a hand, but was watching Matt and Rob having both thought they won. Neither of them had won because they won the same number of tricks. God. And then the only bonus you get for that is you don't have to ante next round. Yeah, so you're just like a free chip. Yeah, you won five pence. It's properly like, here, please enjoy this casino key ring. But then also it's, it incentivizes you. And again, this is why it's such a dangerous gambling game and so funny if you're playing with really small denominations because um, when, the, when that happens... Obviously, you've got a huge pot next round, so every so everyone wants to win it, which means everyone yep. goes in, which means the probability of winning zero tricks and getting whopped on the wrist is way higher. Yeah, and yeah, it's terrifying. Like honestly, if it's 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 one of the few uh, card games I've played that's involved like uh, gambling, which I, I just feel it needs a tremendous warning sticker on yeah, it it's, because it's like it's so easy to just lose all of your money immediately. Um, so yeah, just, 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 it's like, if you're not a hundred percent cool with that, it's like, you know, we say with gambling, like don't gamble or you're not willing to lose, but it's like, you can lose your entire ante. You can lose a whole evening of things of being like, I'm going to put three pounds in for these chips. You could lose all of that in like 20 minutes easily. <laughs> like, it could just go in your first round. So uh, if you're not completely comfortable with that, then just stay the hell away from it. Yeah, that was... Gosh, uh, what a strange and exciting what game. What a bizarre thing. We're going to absolutely do it for the series. Uh, so yeah, look, for, look out for some more coverage of Bure uh, in the near future. Kylie and I now have been playing some Gugong. So Gugong is a game set in China in history times. Now, Matthew, stop me if you've heard this one before, but you're going to be working for the government trying to do various government administrative tasks. I love the government. Well, in this, you'd better love the government because the person who gets the most points wins and you're going to get points from doing things like constructing the Great Wall of China, implementing laws, sailing boats down a river. It's all generic sort of... German management game stuff. So where did the dugongs from Legend of Zelda come into this? Right. First off, dugongs? Oh, you've thrown me. It's a real animal. It's not just from the Legend of Zelda. It's a sea cow that's native to like, it's in the Middle East and places. Oh, I thought, but I thought you you fed them bombs and they blew up and there was king. No, that's dodongos. Hang on, I've got to go back to my, my lab and make you some notes. You have to go back to your, really your diaries. So here's the thing about uh, Gugong though, Matthew, which is the Chinese uh, emperor is sick of corruption. He's had enough. There's no corruption going to be allowed in this There's Chinese government. There's one thing we know that the Chinese government don't like. It's corruption. It's true. So um, what you have instead is the system that, um, that powers the game, which is the idea of exchanging gifts. It's like, oh, Kylie, you know, I'm not going to give you a bribe. But if you wanted to give me that jade statue on your desk, I would give you these chopsticks. And then Kylie has bribed me. So the way that this works is it's a management game with like seven different action spaces you might take. You might go to the Great Wall. You might go to increase intrigue by hanging out with the concubines. Mm. All these different spaces that do that are basically little mini games, all of which give you points in different ways. Um, however, every space on the board has a card on it, which is what that government official has right now in terms of gifts. And these cards all have numbers from one to nine. So one, bowl of fruit, that's garbage. Nine, golden statue, that's really expensive. 
players then have a hand of four cards, and to take any of the actions, you have to put a card on that space and exchange it with what the government official has. Like, ostensibly, I don't think somebody giving you a bowl of fruit is, like, a bribe. Okay, but no, no, it's not. It's it's a bribe if I give you something worth, like, a pair of engraved chopsticks and you give me a bowl of fruit back. All right, I see. see how this works? I completely so, see. Actually, the bowl of thru- fruit, even though it's uh, one point, you can swap that with the golden lion statue because yes. sometimes the uh, government official will do anything for a banana. It's true. They get super hungry and then that it's a way to reset Blood the sugar. Ball. It's a thing. <laughs> Turns out running the biggest country in the world is thirsty and slash hungry work. Um, but mechanically, this works beautifully, right? So let's say you've got um, a seven in your hand and you really want to take uh, an action on this space that has the four gift printed on it, mm-hmm. okay? Matt's closing his eyes. He's scrunching his face up so hard to try and picture this. I think I got it. Okay, so that means that you could take the action on that four space. Let's say it's the sailing boats space. You could go and sail a boat and exchange that seven in your hand and pick up the four, Okay. Yeah, but that sounds like a bad deal. It's not great because that four that you've got now goes into your hand for next turn. So then you have to find somebody who's got something that's like a one-two or better than yeah. Yep. And so this is this is the whole game. Everyone starts with a hand of pretty decent gifts, but over the course of the game, you're going to be exchanging them for worse things and worse things and worse things and worse things and worse. Question, Uh, and I'll go with Kylie for this one. What's worse, corruption or? Giving gifts to people that are gifts that have already been given to you. Oh, re-gifting. Ooh. Re-gifting. Well, I guess in uh, today's world of sustainability, uh, you know, actually, I think corruption. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think re-gifting is pretty good. However, re-gifting fruit. <laughs> yeah. What's the line on that one? Yeah. Although I think there's one thing you haven't mentioned, which is the destiny dice. Oh, so God. Actually, uh, sometimes, so you roll some dice at the beginning of the round and uh, you want to get the most amount of cards that rep, uh, that are represented in those numbers. Mm-hmm. So actually, sometimes you really want that too, because that two is in, a, in the destiny dice, which gives you extra things at the end of the game. Yep, I definitely oh. screwed myself over because we roll the dice at the top of the round. And it's like, oh, anyone who's holding gifts number two, four or five next round does, you know, gets extra service. Is this to do with the idea of it being like, this is lucky? Uh, I think if you were being generous, yes. I want to say that in an otherwise quite thematic game, that's the one area where he's like, and then also there's some dice with numbers yeah, on. Yeah, because that doesn't change. Like, there are things that are lucky within Chinese culture, but they're not, like, Yeah, like the number season. seven, for sure. Yeah, it's not like, like... Our suitcases are so lucky this year. Yeah, that's... I can't believe you got 18 suitcases. Wow. I have a house. So long as we're talking about theme, though, it is actually a really lovely looking game. Really lovely components. You've got a lovely little wooden Chinese person who goes around collecting taxes, and he's cute and made of wood, and it's nice. Um, but no, I, I've sort of, I've been thinking about this game a lot since we played it and it's just a really strong puzzle to have like this, uh, sort of smaller mechanic that's almost like a flywheel that then sits on top of the game. So you can't interact with what is otherwise a quite simple and satisfying management game without doing this little card game first. And it's very simple to, you know, play numbers that are simply just higher than the ones on the board. But what I really enjoyed was getting to the final round, round four of four of Gugong. And then my hands would, my cards were just garbage. So at that really important point in a management game where you're like, well, I definitely need to finish. I need to get this last piece of jade that will make all the jade collecting I've been doing this game worthwhile. I need to finish the Great Wall. I need to uh, go and meet the Emperor. All these different tracks. You've got the worst cards if you're not careful. Mm. So actually it's worth being less ambitious in early game to ensure that in the last round you have good cards. Also, and this is great, let's say someone has a really low card, like like that pair of chopsticks I mentioned. It's like number two. Obviously, it's efficient for you to place a three, and then you're only swapping a three for a two, so you're, you're in the clear, right? But what you could also do is put an eight there, which is a terrible gift exchange. Give the person there something super valuable, mm. but no one else can then use that yeah. space. Because mm. mm. everyone's like, I brought you a gift. What's that on your desk? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And I not- just brought you eight bananas. Exactly. I can't compete with a jade, whatever that is. Although interestingly, you can only give them the fruit item if they're hungry enough. So the fruit is not wild. The fruit can only be exchanged for the nine, the highest cards. Wow. Well, today I've learned that accepting gifts is technically corruption, which means I've got to go and deal with a cupboard full of a... Uh, Full of gold. Oh, you're like Alan Partridge who receives pallets of yeah, pallets of, of pallets of gold from Matigo. Uh Kylie, I enjoyed this one quite a bit. How did you feel about it? No, uh, it was a really charming little game. Uh, I it is a really beautiful game. I really enjoyed the colours in this game. You did. Um, we were talking about yeah. this because it's not yellow. It's like a sort of 
I don't know the words. It's like a green. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's a really nice teal color as well, um, which I really rate, rated that. Yeah, I, I don't mm. even know what the yellow... The yellow was just slightly burnished, slightly brown. Oh, is it uh, perhaps a, a burnt... Umber. umber maybe mm-hmm. maybe it was definitely the kind of game that makes you realize how oh, okay okay is that one okay okay and it was the kind of game that makes you realize how unimaginative certain uh, companies are being when it's like the colors are red green blue like unpainted wood you know this was very much like just by changing all the colors a little bit they were really nice yeah really pleasing um but i think one thing did you mention the uh, mechanic uh, about the Imperial Palace. So you can only actually win if you get to have your meeting with the Emperor. So you've got um, this little man that you've got to waddle up this little track. It's not, it's a huge track. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> uh, and that was the really interesting thing was when you were talking about the uh, exchanging those cards like a three for an eight. Because uh, you almost prevented uh, Rob from getting his meeting with the Emperor, which would mean that he couldn't win yes. in, the, in the last game. So it's it's easy to forget about that little track. Yeah. Uh, but it's actually arguably the most important because if you don't get there, you can't win anyway. I really enjoyed that, honestly. Because usually, you know, these management games, otherwise known as Euro games, you know, it, it's always almost always a point attack. It's whoever gets the most points. And that's sort of... Not enormously exciting. It's like usually at the end of a Euro game, you know, it's like, oh, if I do this, then maybe, just maybe, yeah, I'll get two extra points. Well, we usually like choose one of these many mad tracks and just really hammer down one of them sure. and then see how many points you get. Whereas having a thing, it's like, yeah, but you've got to do that. It's quite cool. It reminds me a little bit of um, Heaven and Ale. Heaven, oh, I'm going to yes. say again because I murmured it. Heaven and Ale, which uh, we talked about in a podcast before. And I'm really hoping gets a, a reprint with some art that isn't awful. Um, because that's a really enticing game about monks getting drunk it's a lovely on game. their own supplies. And again, it has the thing of like, well done. Yeah, you did a really good job of making like, you know, tons of hops, but you didn't get any water, which means at the end of the game, you're like, you didn't make any beer. <laughs> just literally, like, it's that thing of being like, yeah, just you can try and do one thing really well. But if you don't do everything a bit well, then you, you can't make beer. Yeah, I think I find that really interesting for how like your strategy goes into going into the game. Like because with Gugong, like some Euro games that I've played, like after I've played once, I'm like, right, okay, I need to go down this track, but uh, to win each time, uh, especially like with actually, you know, Great Western Trail, like you know, trains. <laughs> it's all about those trains for me. Oh, you love the trains. Yeah, I love the trains, and I uh, win quite a lot with the trains. So mm. it's a good track. But um, yeah, with Gugong, I, after one play, I'm not actually sure whether I know which one is the right one to it, go for. It's or pretty wild. Lead. Yeah. yeah. It's I, all about the talk to the Emperor strat, I think, well, what, as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm kind of stuck on it. Like, we, But just because it's so nice to have a game which is like carrot and stick, it's kind of like Bure, which we were just talking about, you know? It's like, it's fun to be rewarded, but it's also fun to be terrified of something. Yeah. And it was interesting in Gugong to spend like, what, an hour and a half really fretting over points, but then be like, hang on. This could all be quite literally pointless if I don't meet the Emperor. Yeah. Is this is there some similarities here to uh, a game we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, Tramways, we investigated of being like, just having this sort of mad, slightly harsh system where you just... It, does it have the same enticement? That's not a word, I don't think. Is enticement a word? I, I'm g- I, d- I think it might be, actually. Say, yeah. Okay, well, it was enticing, it was good, and uh, I... Oh, in fact, oh, I've just realised we're recording this podcast... I, depending on when this podcast comes out, there might even be a video review of Gugong on Shut Up and Sit Down. Imagine that. Well, I never. Well, I look forward to um, maybe, I don't know, maybe being in that review. We haven't done that yet. <laughs> so, um, I, think it's, I think we're filming it next week. Yeah. I, mean, I, I will play it first, obviously. but uh, Yeah, I wouldn't, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't stress too much. Hello there. This is Quinn's from the future. I'm now editing uh, this podcast and I've realised... Oh no, you idiot guys and girl, you forgot to talk about Chinatown, uh, the amazing negotiation board game, even though you said you would. So I thought, hey, why not come back like uh, to save the past like Marty McFly? And I think I'll just talk for five minutes about Chinatown again. Um, Because it's just been reprinted. Uh, This is a game that we reviewed all the way back in 2014. Those lusty days when my hair was still so thick that I didn't get uh, sunburned through it. Um, but then it was basically, this game was immediately sold out, and finally Zedman have reprinted it. And so a lot of people are wondering, is it still good? Does Shut Up and Sit Down still recommend it? To which the answer is yes, and yes, and then a third yes, uh, just for good measure. So if you've not heard of this game before, 
it's a, it's a negotiation classic, and it's excellently simple. You've got uh, eight city blocks in uh, New York's Chinatown in the 1960s, and players randomly get given lots um, around this. So you might get, you know, the shop over here and the property over here and the property over here. Players then also randomly get given tiles, of which you draw randomly and there's only a limited amount of each. So maybe you get uh, two dim sum tiles and a tea shop tile. Um, and your friend gets another tea shop tile and then three seafood tiles. And then what players do is they enter a negotiation phase where anything goes and players end up swapping and buying and trading and promising lots, money and, uh, you know, these, these property tiles you get with the goal of every player um, creating a linked runner property. So like 64, 65 and then 67, which is just below them. Um, and then you place businesses on those trying to complete them. So, for example, a tea shop tile has the number four printed on it, which means you need four tea shop tiles in adjacent uh, businesses to complete that business. And then those uh, businesses start making a ton of cash um, because incomplete businesses don't make very much money. So it's six rounds of trading and income, trading and income, trading and income. And after you've done that six times, the game is over. And my gosh. Uh, it's great. It, I did the our review a while back, so it's kind of a shame that I'm talking about it um, because it was Matt and Kylie who played it for the first time, but I know exactly what they think because I talked to them a lot afterwards. They both just really, really like it. We played Chinatown um, as a three-player game recently, of, at which point it's a tight and interesting and curious little negotiation strategy game, but then Matt and I later played it with a full five, which is just a riot. Um, because there's this sense that if you don't make the deals you want right now, the tiles and spaces will be traded away, people will run out of money, they'll lose interest, they'll get tired, so everyone's trying to make deals really quickly. I wish I could click my finger with my left hand so that I could be like, pow, 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 but I, I can't, I can't do that. And that uh, time tension, which is not a real term, but I'm going to pretend that it is, was something that we also saw in another negotiation game, Sidereal uh, Confluence which is uh, the, the idea in that game where if you don't make the deals you need quick, then all the cubes that you need will be snaffled up by other players. And uh, yeah, it's, it's entertaining there and it's entertaining here. Chinatown also distinguishes itself by being a very calculating game where you are playing, you know, with like hard numbers and figures. And, um, you know, you know that if you manage to get that fifth takeout tile, it'll be worth... 60 grand to you multiplied by the four remaining turns in the game. So 60 times four, $240,000. Wow. And so you can put prizes on things. But despite that, it's a game where players get hot-headed and players are overly mean to each other. It's possible to make these lovely mistakes or, or grudges. Um, we played with um, a man called Asger, actually, the designer of Flam Rouge. And Chinatown's one of his favorite games ever. And there was this amazing turn where Matt and I were trying to negotiate for this additional property that would let us finish our photography shop. Um, and the player who owned the property was being, uh, you know, he, he knew that he knew it was valued at 60,000. He was trying to get 60,000 out of it, out of us. And Matt and I were just saying no. And then Asger swept into him and said, you know what, I'll pay you 60,000 for it and then bought it. So now suddenly we were negotiating with Asger and he did that because he felt that we would eventually cave. We would eventually pay 60,000 or even 70,000 for it because we wanted it so much. So he bought it. So he took over negotiations and we just said, no, we were playing hardball with him. We're serious. We're going to play hardball with you even more because especially so, because we think you're doing really well in the game. And so we never bought that lot for him. So in a way, he ended up losing a fair chunk of money. And in that game, Matt and I beat him by only the, the smallest possible amount, just $10,000. So if he'd managed to keep his cool, which he did for the entire game, but in that one moment where he lost it and just thought, ah, oh, this will be fun, this will be wild, I'll really screw them. Uh, he, he lost the game in that moment. So yeah, absolutely lovely. A deeply emotional and colorful experience that's nonetheless very strategic and thought-provoking. And most of all, it's simple. The manual is just like four pages long. And of course, that's why it's been reprinted over and over again. It's not just a lovely nine or 10 out of 10 game if you're into negotiation. It's just beautifully simple. And ah, the color you get from negotiating over properties that everyone's been to, you know? You're not negotiating over like factories or textile. Well, you are negotiating over factories. That's a poor example. But you're not talking about, you know, textile industries in the 1780s. You're talking about places that the players have been in real life. Seafood restaurants, laundromats, Chinese takeout places. And so it's a, it, it doesn't make the game entertaining because it's exotic. It just makes it relatable. 
Um, and it's funny as well. When your friend is giving you a hard time trying to sell you their shrimp tiles as if they were the shrimp mafia, that's just hilarious and really softens the game. You know, I'm the laundromat king, you'll say. And players will be like, oh, God, he, he is the laundromat king. That's pretty worrying. Um, there's real, real relatable color there. Oh, and if you want to watch us playing Chinatown, we've just recorded a full playthrough video, which is currently on our Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash shut up and sit down. Let's check if I got that right. Yeah, I, I did. So it'll be there for the next few weeks. After that, it'll be uploaded to our YouTube channel in the, uh, if you just search for shut up and sit down, play Chinatown um, on YouTube, you'll definitely find that in future. Okay, like like Marty McFly in the past, it's it's time for me to now go back to the future and let let uh, Matt and Kylie finish out the podcast. Take it away, Quins. Put your hand in my mailbag. Find me a letter. Ah, I just have a little. I think I've got a good one here. Let me just squeeze past this and that and write down. Oh oh, it's a it's a little one. I've got one. Tiny letter, and it's from Patrick. Thank oh. you, Patrick. Patrick writes, Greetings, I've been a fan of your work for the past two years, but I've just started listening to your prockets. Let's try that. He's been listening to my prockets. Shut up! I, I beg your pardon. Shut up, shut up. Stop your ears out of my prockets, young man. Matthew, stop embarrassing me in front of the intern. Uh, Patrick writes, Greetings, I've been a fan of your work for the past two years, but I've just started listening to your podcasts, brackets, which are delightful. Delightful. Close brackets. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, I've recently moved into a small apartment. I need to pick a new dinner table that can satisfy my board game needs. I've noticed Quinn's table expands to accommodate larger games. Mm. How has your hobby shaped any philosophies for buying furniture? For example, are round tables better than square ones? Now you might mm. think, Quinn's, I can't believe you picked this question. It's so boring, but I've got a... The reason why I wanted to read it out is because... Can I just say... Because we, we travel to America to play board games a fair bit. Yeah. Can Americans stop buying tables that are way too big? Like, come on. I if mean, you, they've got a lot of room. I know, but time, just... And, and I get it. They can have big tables. I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying it's a stupid idea for idiots. <laughs> and like, no, but... Wow. I, honestly... Forget about embarrassing yourself, embarrassing yourself in front of the intern. You're embarrassing yourself in front of the intern. Net. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's very good. But here's the thing: people talk about ex my how my table expands to accommodate large, like large board games. But for me, or large meals, or large meals, sure, or large and large crafts projects. Yeah, if I wanted to uh, get into paper mache in a big way, <laughs> that's otherwise known as a midlife crisis. Uh, but no, it's people talk about expanding board uh, tables to fit big board games. What about? The other way to see it, which is shrinking tables so that you can be closer to your friends while playing yeah, that's, small board games, which is true. not getting enough airtime in this hobby. Discuss. Yeah. I don't like the like gaming tables. I don't I like I don't like the idea of like leaning over my game. Mm, and then your game is sort of sunken and far away from you. Yeah, yeah, and then not having elbow room as well. Like they don't look like they've got a lot of uh... well, you rest your elbows on the table, I believe. That. No, but it's like a little shelf on top of the table, right? Not too bad. You've got some room for elbows. But I do know what you mean about the, the dip. Usually you've yeah. got like a good six inches of like wood before you get into like the uh, the depths. So all I'm saying is I want to be close to the game and I want to be close to my friends. And is all this, of those things require a small table. Is this a mailbag question or a cry for help? This is a... Patrick is actually me. <laughs> I, I want to be close to my friends. But, and honestly, this is something... No, I, I'm with you. Good. Just to, just to bury just the lead on that You've given me a I'm hard sorry. time there. I'm sorry. Before I give you a hard time for comedy value, I want to tell you, I'm, I agree. I mean, I do miss having a gigantic table sometimes. In my house, I technically have a choice of three tables, three unlockable tables. Yeah, and none of them quite fit for purpose. Actually, no, that's not no, true. No, the large one just about does it, but Matt, only just. Kylie, Matt's big table is amazing because it is very long, but very narrow. Yeah, and it means that if you're playing a big game, often what you have to do is combine the big table with the litter table to make one really long, really thin table. Yeah. <laughs> but at least you get to be close to your friends, like like... The Last Supper, but instead of just sitting around one edge of the table, sitting around both sides, which arguably they should have done it, but it's his last meal. Just have a little cosy one. Don't it's, it's very weird. Forget about the photo for a minute, guys. <laughs> Get in. Have Kylie, a buffet. Kylie, where do you sit, pun intended, on tables? 
Uh, I think you have got a pretty special table. It, it, yeah, no, it's the correct table. It's Ikea, and if anyone wants my... People sometimes do... It e- is funny. It's like it's just an Ikea table, but everyone looks at it being like, where did Quinn's get this incredible gaming table? It's literally one of Ikea's cheapest tables, yeah. Um, no, it, sorry. You, it, it's good. It's, it's yeah, it's it's. The, I feel like it's the correct table. I've bought it three times <laughs> as a fun fact for Shut Up. Wow. Is that why it never ages? Like... Yeah, Keanu Reeves. It's yeah, it's it's the Keanu Reeves of tables. No, because I had one, and then I had a breakup with a girlfriend, then I had another, then I moved, and this is the. Th- <sighs> I can't believe you bought a table from an old relationship. That's weird. I, Does your wife know no, that you bought a table again? Bought it to replace the yes. relationship. Yeah, I know that's weird. Yeah. What? Oh god! Because no. you had a table that you bought with somebody else in a relationship, and then you bought the same table again. I'm losing control of this conversation. That's weird, man. I'm going to change to the second point, which is how do we feel of round square tables. versus round tables? I think square. I think there's a real love... Because obviously, let's. this is the pizza principle, right? Circular tables are just giving you less surface area. However, I think they're aesthetically pleasing. I don't get to play board games on a circular table enough. Yeah, but I think circular tables don't tend to be expandable in a good way. Oh no, because then they just become like, they, they get that weird midriff in the middle. There's, yeah. one, there's one you can get where it's like, it spins out like a transformer, Ooh, but what? I think that, yeah, but I think they cost an absolute fortune. I think they're like super high-end designer things of like, you can just basically pull it and it goes, and it rotates like a camera aperture, but then slots in to make wow. it. Wow. Like, yeah, I mean, that's what? like, I'm a millionaire table rather than like a table anyone can sensibly buy. But imagine if you could have a table that was small and square that then became large and round. I mean, this is literally like, let's just imagine physics didn't exist. But, <laughs> but how cool would that be? That, I th- yeah, that'd I've, be pretty cool. I, but you guys are with me, right? That actually the board game scene is like obsessed with square tables, obviously, because that makes sense for board games. But actually there's a real aesthetic joy from a circular table. I mean, casinos know this. Casinos are making a lot of circular tables. Well, they're great for card games, but for board games, it's incredibly aesthetic, unpleasing. If you're playing a Euro game and you've got like, I like to be able to have everything aligned with the edge of the table. Yeah, I'm with you on that. My OCD would not allow like a, because then you've got like a square inside a circle and then trying to like fit everything around the edge of the circle. But for games, where you're looking up at people more like you know social games or games with talking like let's say we're playing china sound i want a circular table because yeah you it's weird to have people all at 90 degree angles or sat parallel with you no i i'm down with that but i think i, I think the, the small table conversation is one which doesn't get had often enough especially you know you, you see photographs sometimes of people in america do big tables playing games and if they're not playing a big table filling game it just looks a bit lonely you're like it's so your mate's weird. like five feet away from you yep the game is like an entire arm's length away from you it's yeah. like sunken and far away like you should be close enough to like mess with other people's cards in front of them as a joke if you want to yeah you won't do it but you should be able to your hand movement there was um, oddly placed from where i'm sat well did it look like matt was reaching over to my yeah and then saying you know like messing with your friends is yeah <laughs> We've worked very closely together for a very long time, you know. Sometimes we just even forget about the board game. It's it's crazy. I think basically American board game tables are like the Jurassic Park thing. They were so focused on whether they could, (laughs) they didn't think about whether they should. I'm I'm coming around to it, you know. I think I was frustrated for a long time about the fact that I've got like a pretty dinky table. Um, But now I have like a bigger table. I actually really like just being like... You know, my wife would be like, oh, you're not setting up the big table in the front room? Because it lives in the cellar most of the time. Um, but no, I'm just going to play in the kitchen on this little table. Because yeah. it's like, get in the kitchen, get cosy. Sometimes I like put a pizza in the oven just because my house is so cold. It's like free, free heating. <laughs> oh, I just caused a peak there. That's that really free heating. tickled me. Yeah. I do that. It's great. Like, you give everyone a bit of pizza. And also, we've just warmed up this room. Got to keep the door shut, obviously. It's the same with having a small collection, though. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish I could have a big board game collection. But actually... Yeah, if you curate it well enough. Smallness sometimes can be nice. Marie Kondo uh, would agree with you. We, we're all I think, brings me joy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Brings me joy. I just want to be close to my friends. That's all I'm saying. Uh, thank you very much for listening to another episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, everybody. As always, thank you to Mr. Steve Davitt for uh, powering this podcast with the strength of his mighty saxophone. Thank you very much to Kylie Rowe as well for joining us this episode. Thank uh, you for having me. And as always, thanks most of all to you the listener James you specifically bye. James thanks James bye James love you James bye bye, bye.